Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Do you like to listen? Hello from England. This is Bob, and I'm an executive producer of the History Goes Bump podcast. This episode and the whole show are entirely listener-supported, and without your support, the creators wouldn't be able to make this fantastic show. If you'd like to join me as an executive producer, check out the Support the Show tab at historygoesbump.com. So, on behalf of Diane and Denise, I can say thanks for listening, and if you just started listening, welcome. On a misty night, two lovely ladies came up with an idea to research and tell the world about history and the things that go bump in the night. This is History Goes Bump. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 200th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. Show 200, Denise. Can you believe it? No, that's incredible. So, wow. We have had so much fun doing this and cheers to the next hundred. Absolutely. On this episode, we are bringing you the history of ghost hunting. This was suggested to us by listeners Sylvia Mason and Amy Sandoval. We're also going to talk about the equipment that is used in ghost hunting, what its purpose is, and then we'll talk a little bit about things you can do to protect yourself from having a haunting, or if you are haunted, some things that you can do. Obviously, this is going to be similar to our spiritualism show in which this is not definitive. This is just kind of touching the high points of the history of ghost hunting. There's so much material here. Obviously, volumes have been written about this as well, as well as the particular ghost hunters that we're going to talk about. They have written volumes. It's just going to be a basic overview. Before we get into that, we'd like to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Sarah. Hey, Sarah. Diana. Hello, Diana. Beverly. Hey, Beverly. Shannon. Hey, Shannon. And Jeremy. Hello, Jeremy. And Jeremy is the host of podcasts we listen to. So, so glad to have him join us. You guys should check out his podcast for sure, especially if you like listening to podcasts because he interviews hosts of podcasts over there. And now, this moment naughty. This Moment in Oddity was suggested by Brianne Barr. Marietta, Georgia has one of the most unique roadside attractions in the United States, and it happens to be attached to a Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurant. The large monstrosity is known affectionately as the Big Chicken. The KFC is located at Cobb Parkway and Roswell Road. The chicken was not built for the KFC, though. Originally, the Big Chicken was built for Stanley R. Tubby Davis and his Johnny Reb's Chick Chuck and Shake restaurant. The Big Chicken rises to seven stories, is still sighted, and has a moving beak and eyes. 
A few years after it was completed, Davis sold Johnny Rebs to his brother, who turned it into a franchise of KFC. The landmark was almost raised in 1993, but the public convinced KFC to restore the structure to its former glory. A big chicken roadside landmark certainly is odd. Creepy makes history more delicious. And now, this month in history. In the month of May, on the 1st in 1960, an American U-2 spy plane flying at 60,000 feet was shot down over central Russia on the eve of an American-Soviet summit. President Dwight D. Eisenhower was supposed to meet with Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev, but the summit was quickly canceled after the event and heightened Cold War tensions. The pilot of the plane was a CIA agent named Francis Gary Powers. He survived the crash and was captured by Soviet agents. Powers was tried and convicted for spying and was sentenced to 10 years in prison by a Russian court. America captured a Soviet spy and arranged an exchange for Powers after he'd been in prison for two years. The American public was hostile to him upon his return because they thought he should not have allowed himself to be captured. He later died in a helicopter crash in 1977. Supernatural activity has been a part of the human experience since the dawn of mankind. Our fascination and, for some, reverence of this activity has lasted into our modern era. The desire to understand where this phenomenon originates and to somehow prove its existence via scientific means has come to be known as paranormal investigation or simply ghost hunting. While we encourage people to not tempt the spirits, especially you over there, Absolutely. That is something I believe in. We are just as fascinated with the paranormal, and it would only seem natural for us to explore the history of ghost hunting in our more recent history. On this episode, we will delve into the history of ghost hunting, explore the different techniques and equipment employed, and discuss tactics that can be used to protect yourself from spiritual attachment and attack. As we discussed in our spiritualism episode, and that was number 191, modern-day ghost hunting originated with the spiritualism movement of the 1800s. One of the first famous reports of ghost hunting dates back to 1834. Major Edward Moore was a British soldier who had written the book The Hindu Pantheon. He moved into the Beelings House in Great Beelings in Suffolk, England, when he retired. This house was reputedly haunted with various phenomenon that started with the ringing of the servants' bells all on their own. For a two-month period, the bells in the dining room and kitchen would ring erratically. Moore watched them and tried to recreate the experience by various means. He studied the system for flaws as well. He never found a rational explanation. After investigating the activity, he reported his experiences and findings in his 1841 book, Beeling's Bells. A pamphlet titled Authentic Account of a Visit to the Haunted House at Willington near Newcastle upon Tyne, that's quite the title, features a reported haunting at a house in the village of Willington in the mid-1800s. The story featured the experiences of Dr. Edward Drury as he conducted an overnight ghost hunt at the home. The haunting became famous and the story was reprinted by William Howitt in the May 22, 1847 issue of Howitt's Journal of Literature and Popular Progress. 
Drury was a novice ghost hunter. He surveyed the entire house before he spent the evening inside it in July of 1840. Drury wrote, I sat down on the third story landing, fully expecting to account for any noises that I might hear in a philosophical manner. It was about 11 o'clock p.m. About 10 minutes to 12, we both heard a noise as if a number of people were pattering about with their feet on the bare floor. And yet, so singular was the noise that I could not minutely determine from whence it proceeded. A few minutes afterward, we heard a noise as if someone was knocking with his knuckles among our feet. This was followed by a hollow cough from the very room from whence the apparition proceeded. The only noise after this was as if a person was rustling against the wall and coming upstairs. In taking my eyes from the watch, they became riveted upon a closet door, which I distinctly saw open, and saw also the figure of a female attired in grayish garments, with the head inclining downward and one hand pressed upon the chest as if in pain, the right hand extended towards the floor with the index finger pointing downwards. It advanced with apparently cautious steps across the floor toward me. Immediately as it approached my friend, who was slumbering, its right hand was extended towards him, I then rushed at it, giving, as Mr. Proctor states, a most awful yell, but instead of grasping it, I fell upon my friend, and I recollected nothing distinctly for nearly three hours afterward. I have since learned that I was carried downstairs in agony of fear and terror. The Spiritual Magazine later called Drury a ghost detector in 1860. Just amazing hearing these early on stories and the kind of experiences these people were having. And they didn't have any of the magical equipment that we have nowadays. It was basically them just sitting there watching this happen. I mean, I can see why he couldn't make sense of anything for a couple hours. I would have been petrified. (laughs) I would have been like, how did I get outside? Because I probably would have fainted right away too, which is what I imagine he probably did. Sir William Crookes was a British physicist and chemist who invented the Crookes tube. The tube was used to discover the properties of the cathode rays, which led to those rays being called electrons. Crookes was fascinated with spiritualism and psychical phenomenon. And I love it when you hear these scientists that are inventing these amazing things. I mean, eventually, electrons is going to come out of what he has invented here. And here he's looking at psychical phenomenon. Love it. Nowadays, most scientists try to stay away from that stuff. In 1870, he began experiments to help facilitate a study of paranormal phenomena. His fellow scientists thought he was crazy, but Crookes believed that if something really was going on, it was the duty of science to study it and perhaps prove that it was real. He spent much of his life trying to find what he called, quote, an outside intelligence. He began his experiments with no preconceptions, but when he died, he firmly believed in the paranormal. He set the conditions for testing mediums. They had to come to his house, and he chose the apparatus he used for testing. He studied several well-known mediums like Daniel Douglas Home, Florence Cook, and Kate Fox of the Fox Sisters. One of the things that Daniel Home was known for was levitation. It was said that he once floated out of a window and then back in another window on the third floor of a home. Crooks witnessed wrappings, levitation, luminous objects, and apparitions. He then published a report of his findings in 1874. The science community outright rejected his report. And of course, as we discussed in our spiritualism podcast episode, the Fox sisters seemed to be a big hoax from what we could conclude from that and from their own claims. So it makes you wonder, Crooks is a man of science. He's studying this closely and he's seeing all of these different things happening. Was he just fooled? And this levitation thing, 
the problem is for us in our modern era, Denise, we have seen magicians do some amazing things. Yes, some to the point that I'm not too sure that they haven't called on something paranormal to help them. Exactly. And so if they are able to conduct these kinds of illusions, how do we know that's not what these people were doing then? I don't know how this Daniel Holm did this. Did it really happen? But uh, you could see why the science community read this stuff and went, "Uh uh-huh, sure. Another key point in ghost hunting history is the formation of the Ghost Club in 1862 in London. It began as a social discussion group at Cambridge University in 1855. Fellows at Trinity College decided to discuss paranormal phenomenon, which was reaching popularity through spiritualism. The club was formally launched in London in 1862. It seemed to dissolve in the 1870s, but relaunched in 1882 when the Society for Cyclical Research, SPR, began. A.A. Watts helped to revive the club with a medium named Reverend Staten Moses. The Ghost Club differed from the SPR because members believed in the paranormal, whereas the SPR was more devoted to conducting scientific research. Attendance at meetings was obligatory, and membership remained small for the next 54 years with only 82 members. The names of members alive and dead were recited every November 2nd, the Feast of All Souls. There were those who claimed that deceased members made their presence known during the recitations. And that's not what we're doing when we welcome you to the Spooktacular crew. <laughs> just just an FYI. <laughs> yeah. Well, we don't want any of our crew members to, to cross over to the other side, but I, I'm not sure we'd want you to visit us if you did. The organization served as a place of refuge for some controversial figures. Attendance fell starting in the 1930s, and Harry Price, Bly Bond, and a handful of surviving members agreed to wind up the club in 1936 after 485 meetings. Within 18 months, the Ghost Club was opened again. The club's membership has gone up and down, and there was political turmoil in the 1990s. After this, the club was open to the public. Before, it had been invite only. So you guys, too, can become a part of the Ghost Club today. Studies into other paranormal phenomenon like cryptozoology also began at this time. Today, the Ghost Club is the oldest organization in the world associated with psychical research. The club moved from just discussing the supernatural to studying it via ghost hunting. Overnight investigations have been conducted at hundreds of sites for decades. They merely study and do not perform clearings or exorcisms. They're very serious about their work and have an elite list of former members, including Charles Dickens, W.B. Yeats, Harry Price, Donald Campbell, Peter Cushing, Peter Underwood, Maurice Gross, Sir Shane Leslie, Eric Maple, and the aforementioned William Cooks. The Society for Cyclical Research, SPR, was founded in London in 1882 by Henry Zidgwick, Frederick Myers, and Edmund Gurney. The SPR went forward with the purpose of investigating mesmeric, psychical, and spiritualist phenomena in a purely scientific spirit. Leaders of the group created a framework with which to go forward with study, and they started a scholarly journal for the reporting of their research. Most members were prominent figures in science and philosophy. Coming from the scientific basis, the group became adept at spotting fake mediums and were not misled by tricks. Investigations were conducted into all varieties of psychical phenomenon from hypnotism to mental telepathy to apparitions to haunting activities. The first volume written on this research, Phantasms of the Living, was published in 1886. 700 personal experiences were cataloged in the book, and Edmund Gurney concluded that most were a form of telepathically generated hallucination caused by life-threatening situations. 
The Census of Hallucinations, speaking of hallucinations, was the next project tackled by the SPR and today is still the largest survey of its kind ever to have been attempted. This research delved into whether the crisis apparitions discussed in the Phantasms book could just be a matter of coincidence. You guys know how I feel about coincidence. Their equations ruled out coincidence. Nearly every physical medium that the group studied was found to be a fraud. One of those declared a flake was Helena Blavatsky, who founded Theosophy and inspired Aleister Crawley. Mental mediums fared better, and they were regarded as trustworthy. This was Leonora Piper of Boston, Gladys Leonard, and Winifred Combe Tennant, Mrs. Willett of London. And Madame Leota of the Haunted Mansion, too. (laughs) She's a mental medium, Denise, that you trust? I think so, because I've seen her a lot, and she does say things, and then you go in the ballroom, and the spirits are there, and you hear the ring. So, hey, she's pretty legit. Well, she does say things like, give us a sign by ringing your bell, and and you hear a bell ring. Exactly, that's what I'm saying. (laughs) Not that I would tempt the spirits with her, but, you know, I've just seen her. (laughs) Three years after the SPR was founded, they would have an American counterpart. The American Society for Psychical Research was founded in 1885 by Harvard psychologist William James. Early members of the club included Sigmund Freud and Carl G. Jung. The American Society worked closely with the European counterpart, and both groups worked with other scientists that were not members, but they coordinated methodology together. These scientists included French professor Charles Rocher and American botanist J.B. Ryan, who founded a parapsychology lab at Duke University in the 1930s. These two men developed test criteria in controlled environments for psychic testing. One of the most fascinating conclusions to some out of much of this research came through a series of automatic writings done by mediums that featured allusions to Greek and Latin literature. The key here was that the mediums had not studied these languages, but the researchers had and they understood what the references were about. This left the scientists with the impression that there was an organized intelligence that they could not see. Even further, they began to become aware that founding members Gurney and Sidgwick, who'd passed by this time, were probably responsible for the writings and were trying to provide proof of survival after death. These correspondences continued for 30 years and are still debated to this day. And the interesting thing is the Rhine Research Center is still open to this day. It's no longer locked into Duke University, but it is still alive and well and publishes the Journal of Parapsychology and they have monthly meetings and you can get in touch with them and I think you can even join them and stuff. But they basically call themselves Psychics for Psychic Research. So I just thought it was fascinating that they would put something like that and link it in with a university like Duke. It's not like it's just some little old college on some back road somewhere. Now, you heard us mention a pretty famous name when it comes to ghost hunting when we were talking about the Ghost Club, and that is Harry Price. He was born in London on January 17, 1881. He would become the real father of ghost hunting. He was a writer who became a psychical researcher, and for this reason, he documented much of his work in books and articles. One of his first interests was magic, and he himself became an amateur conjurer, joining the magic circle in 1922. This would help him to identify fraud in mediums. He knew all the tricks. He knew if they were pulling his leg. So if he could recreate what they were doing, he would know that they were fraudulent. Price joined SPR in 1920, so he moved from just being a part of the ghost club to actually wanting to get into the scientific study. He spent most of his life investigating hauntings and psychical phenomenon. Many of his cases are still famous to this day, including Jeff the Talking Mongoose, which we've mentioned in one of our Moments in Oddity, 
and the haunting at Borley Rectory. He also investigated other mundane things like firewalking. He was controversial, not only for his work, but he also championed legislation to regulate psychic practitioners. One of his greatest contributions to ghost hunting was his development of a ghost hunting kit. So all those ghost hunters out there that take something with them when they go to an investigation have Harry Price to thank for that. One of the first cases he took on was in regards to the spirit photography of William Hope. The way that Price unmasked Hope as a fraud was very simple. He secretly marked Hope's photographic plates with the logo of the Imperial Dry Plate Company, LTD. Hope's photos would then be marked with this logo. The photographer was unaware that the plates had been altered, and he went forward with taking photographs as part of his SPR testing. Hope later handed over his photos to the SPR, and they contained spirits in the pictures. Price knew that Hope was a fraud after this because none of those pictures had the logo on them. It was clear that Hope had exchanged the materials provided by Price with his own prepared materials containing the fake spirit images. Price wrote in his SPR report, William Hope has been found guilty of deliberately substituting his own plates for those of a sitter. It implies that the medium brings to the sitting a duplicate slide and fake plates for fraudulent purposes. So basically, Hope was able to do a lot of this double exposure. Many of you have seen a lot of his spirit photography. It's posted in the Spooktacular crew a lot. They're creepy, creepy photos. And yet we all know today that they're fake. You can tell that they're fake because it's just, if there was going to be images that clear that would show up in photography, I would think the digital pictures that we take nowadays would capture things that are more stunning than what William Hope was putting out there. So that's how you know. If we're not getting better pictures than he was back then, there's probably a little something going on. And so Price was able to unmask him for that. But those photos were really creepy and I wish they were real. Now, we have had this location suggested to us. We haven't done it yet. And uh, we probably will do it at some point in the future. This is Borley Rectory in Essex. And this was one of the most famous hauntings that he investigated. And it would be his lifelong obsession. He first visited the location in 1929 after hearing about the phantom of a nun appearing in the garden at the house. Other reports included disembodied footsteps, various apparitions, including the man who built the rectory, and ghost lights. He asked a local for directions, and the man said, Oh, you mean the most haunted house in England? Price would name his first volume about Borley Rectory just that, the most haunted house in England. Now, he would say later on, that it was supposed to be as if he was quoting the man and it was supposed to be a question, not necessarily a declaration. He published this in 1940. So we see that even back in the 1940s, claiming to be the most haunted (laughs) was very popular even then. Indeed. He lived at the rectory for a year in the late 1930s. Many believe that the wife of Reverend Lionel Foister, who lived at the rectory from 1930 to 1935, had faked the paranormal activity that Price was following up on, and members of SBR claim that Price himself faked phenomenon while he lived at the house. This reminds me of our modern-day ghost hunting shows, Denise, where a lot of them get accused of faking things. It's that whole thing about pressure. You need to have something show up or happen, so maybe you help it to happen a little bit. So it seems that that's what they were accusing Price of doing. Some of those members of SPR later came into Borley Rectory to check up on some of the claims, and their later studies came to the conclusion that any weirdness was caused by natural things like, you know, rats running around. That would cause a little bit of scratching on the walls, scratching on the floor, sounding like furniture's moving around or shuffling. But before one writes off the haunting at Borley Rectory, consider that Price came to know the nun spirit to be named Marie. 
and she told him that one day the rectory would burn and that proof of the fact that she was murdered would be found. The house did indeed suffer a fire that gutted it, and when Price excavated the basement, female bones were found. I don't know, something, something was weird there. One of the next famous ghost hunters would be Austrian-born Hans Holzer. He immigrated to America in 1938 with his family when he was 18. His paranormal investigations took him all over the world, and he eventually wrote more than 140 books on the paranormal. Some claim that Holzer came up with the term ghost hunter, but H. Addington Bruce wrote a book in 1908 titled Historic Ghosts and Ghost Hunters. One of Holzer's most famous cases was the Amityville Horror House. For those who don't know, this home was the scene of a horrific murder. Nearly the entire DeFeo family was slaughtered, and the eldest son, Ronald Jr., was charged with the crime. He claimed that the devil made him do it. It was in January of 1977 that Holzer first entered the house in Amityville, New York. He took with him a psychic he trusted, medium Ethel Myers. Myers told him that the house was built on a Native American burial ground and that spirits of the dead had taken over Ronald's body. There never was any proof of the burial ground, and the historical society denied the claim. Holzer believed that something was going on at the house, and he was a true believer. The SPR thought Holzer's claims were dubious, and they disliked his use of psychics. But he is still considered an authority even today, nearly 10 years after his death. So you will probably hear him mentioned quite a bit on paranormal programs that you watch on TV. His name is very well known when it comes to ghost hunting, and he really was a pioneer in that. Probably the most famous couple in ghost hunting is Lorraine and Ed Warren. The paranormal investigators have received a resurgence into popular culture with the success of recent horror films like Annabelle, The Conjuring, and The Conjuring 2 that feature cases with which the Warrens are connected. The Warrens are also a very controversial couple. Ed is no longer alive, but Lorraine is, and she lives in New England where she had run the couple's occult museum. It's no longer open as far as I know, and if anybody knows differently, let me know, but I think they had to shut it down because of some zoning regulations. But in this museum, it features haunted items like the Annabelle doll and various other things that they've picked up throughout the years. Ed was a demonologist, and Lorraine is a trance medium. For 50 years, they investigated all manners of hauntings and generally held to the belief that paranormal activity was demonic in nature. The couple began investigating early in their relationship. Ed had grown up in a haunted house, and he was fascinated by what he experienced as a child. Anytime he heard that a house was haunted, he dragged Lorraine along to check it out. Kind of like taking your wife on ghost tours with you. Their most famous cases were the Amityville House, Annabelle the Haunted Doll, which we covered in our Haunted Dolls episode, the Perone Home, which is what The Conjuring is about, and the Enfield Poltergeist, which is featured in The Conjuring 2. The couple began the New England Society for Psychic Research in 1952. They claim to have done 10,000 investigations. What makes them controversial are the claims of hauntings in places that seem to have been invented, possibly for money. It is thought by most today that the Amityville Horror was an entirely made-up event. Those who worked directly with the infield poltergeist claim the Warren spent one day at the house and had no real involvement, while the Conjuring 2 movie makes it seem as though this was entirely their case. For us, the jury is still out. They seem to have found some real evidence in their time, and they seem to have helped some people with problematic spirits. They definitely were pioneers in the field of ghost hunting. And we've made that comment many times on the show whenever the Warrens come up. I'm always a little dubious. I'm not really sure how I, you know, where I stand when it comes to them. 
I think there was a lot of great things that they contributed to ghost hunting. But I also wonder, again, how much of it is made up to make it sound like something's going on that really wasn't. Our modern era has witnessed a saturation of paranormal investigative shows, as you all know out there. I know a lot of our listeners are big fans of those shows. Of course, before these was my favorite In Search Of, which was hosted by Leonard Nimoy in the 1970s. This is what I cut my teeth on when people ask me what, get, what got you interested in the paranormal. That's always part of my answer is In Search Of. I was mesmerized by that show when I was a kid. Then, of course, we also grew up in the 1980s, Denise, and that's when Unsolved Mysteries started and absolutely loved that show as well. And then there was sightings in the 1990s, which kind of took over when Unsolved Mysteries went away. And then, of course, uh, Unsolved Mysteries came back again for a little bit, and then now it's gone again, but it's back in rerun, so that's a great thing. But it has been the paranormal reality TV that began in the early 2000s that really made popular the idea that the average person on the street could be an amateur ghost hunter. Hundreds have formed or joined their own teams, made the t-shirts, and conducted their own investigations. And I'm sure a lot of you were probably inspired by a lot of these shows. And just to name a few off the top, this is obviously not a definitive list. You've got Ghost Hunters or TAPS, which is really what started it all. So whatever you may think about them, I know we like to make fun of them. Did you hear that? And that kind of thing. They were the ones who really got this started. Then there's Ghost Adventures with Zach Baggins, who likes to go in and start fights with ghosts, I guess you could say. So we like to make fun of him, too. Yep, he is definitely a spirit tempter. (laughs) There's Ghost Lab, Haunted Collector, Ghost Mine, Fact or Faked, Destination Truth. That was one of my favorites. Paranormal Witness, Celebrity Ghost Stories, Ghost Asylum, My Ghost Story, Ghost Brothers, which is a lot of people's most recent favorite. I really enjoy that one. Kindred Spirits, Dead Files, Most Haunted, Haunted Highway, Paranormal State, and Paranormal Lockdown. Denise, you and I have never gone and specifically done any kind of ghost hunting, but we have worked with some of the equipment that we're going to discuss here. Obviously, we have ghost hunters in our listenership. You guys would have a better knowledge than we do, so hopefully we get this right. This is not definitive either with all the equipment that's out there, but it'll give people a pretty good idea of the key pieces of equipment that are used today. And so starting off with the equipment, there are the EMF meters K2. These meters measure the rate of change in the surrounding magnetic field, so they're sensitive to changing magnetic fields. Those fields have frequency above zero hertz, EMF meters are designed to measure many frequency ranges, which you will hear as ELF, visible light, and x-rays. Most meters read frequencies of about 30 to 10,000 hertz. It is believed that ghosts use electrical activity for energy, and so they will cause spikes in EMF detectors. Most EMFs that you have seen have color zones ranging from green to orange to red, with a red spike indicating a spirit nearby. Then there's the EDI meters, or sometimes they're nicknamed EDI. This is an all-in-one device. It has an EMF meter, a temperature gauge, humidity gauge, and a geophone vibration detection. And what a geophone is, is it basically converts ground movement into voltage. These vibrations are generally caused by seismic waves. So they're thinking if a ghost is in the area, it would cause the waves to move. Or maybe if there's footsteps or something, it would cause some kind of ground movement. And so that would register on a geophone, which is in the eddy. Then we have the EVP recorder. 
This is a digital recorder like a Zoom H1 or various versions thereof like Sony or Olympus. Somehow a spirit's vocal cues are picked up by the digital recording and can only be heard during playback. There is a version of recorder that provides real-time recording, meaning that it rewinds and plays back as you go so that you can listen while investigating. The EVPs have three rankings. Class A voices are very clear and easily understandable. Class B voices are fairly loud and clear and are sometimes audible without headphones. And Class C voices are very soft and often indecipherable. And the neat thing about those real-time EVP recorders is I think they work better because when you've done a session, you may have recorded hours and hours of audio and then you got to go back and listen to hours and hours. And sometimes, wouldn't it be better if you knew that you got something that was responding to you right at that moment rather than later you're like, well, I think we were in this room and then something said something to us. It's To me, it's much easier if you could just right then know that something said something to you about five minutes ago. Right. And then you're thinking back. And so you're like, I think I remember hearing that, but am I just like, but then you also question, or am I thinking I heard that because of the information I now have? It's kind of like the EVP that we think we might have caught when we were at the St. Augustine Lighthouse and you thought maybe you'd heard it as something audible and then I picked it up on the recorder. It would have been nicer if we'd known right about that moment that we'd actually caught something so that we could maybe try to interact with whatever it was again, because apparently it was talking. Are you suggesting that we might try to tempt the spirits? No, no, I wouldn't do that at all. Another form of EVP kind of communication is with ghost boxes, or you might have heard them called shack hacks. At a basic level, a ghost box is a broken AM FM radio. It's modified so that it continuously scans the radio bands. Usually it's an AM radio band. And when a spirit uses this to communicate, words can be heard, sometimes even a full sentence. The theory is that the white noise is manipulated by spirits to form words. And I believe more in the ones where you get a full sentence because, you know, when you're scanning a radio band, even if you, it's just flipping through really quick, you're every so often going to hear, you know, a word, there's a word. So um, are we talking about backmasking? Because I think that's what a lot of that was. Yeah, that would be kind of what it, it has the same sound mm-hmm. as backmasking whenever I hear it. Right. So when you're getting a full sentence to me, that's a little bit more believable. Or if you're getting a full name, mm-hmm. that's a little bit more believable to me than just a word. Also, we've discussed with some people who've joined us on previous episodes when we were talking to Craig Nering about Summerwind Mansion, he had caught curse words, and these are things that would not ever make it onto a regular radio. And so if you're catching, say, the F word on, you know, while you're scanning an AM or FM band, well, that's not going to be put out there because of regulation. So, you know, you've caught something there. Especially if it appears I'm seeing it, Josh Wood. Next are FLIR thermal cams. FLIR is the name of a company that makes these thermal cams. They call themselves the world's sixth sense. Their cameras detect infrared light and thermal patterns. Our vision detects a very small portion of the electromagnetic spectrum. Thermal energy has a much longer wavelength than visible light, which makes it impossible for us to see it. Thermal imaging allows us to see thermal energy emitted from an object. In the infrared world, everything with a temperature above absolute zero emits heat. It works with light or dark. Then there's the Melmeter. Gary Golka created the Melmeter, and he named it after his daughter, whom had passed away, and he wanted something that he could communicate with her spirit. And so that's where this creation came from. 
These meters are handheld and they're a combination of an EMF and ambient temperature. So a lot of ghost hunters like to carry this around. It's a very simple gadget, but it gives you two pretty important readings at once. Next, we have the REM pod. The REM circuit was originally developed to be part of the Mel Meter series. The REM pod uses a mini telescopic antenna to radiate its own independent magnetic field around the device. When something electrical gets close to the device, it gives off an alarm and LED lights flash on. It also can detect vibrations. Denise, we saw this in action when we did our ghost tour in downtown Orlando. Oh, that's true. Yes, we did. Yeah, when we were in that uh, upstairs room and he just set it on the other side of the room because if you put it too close to a human, we'll set them off too because we have electrical energy coming off of us, which is why as spirits, we tend to do the same thing. And uh, it did go off a couple times. So that was interesting. But not as much as the disco lights did. No. And you definitely had fun with your disco lights. Full spectrum video camera. Our eyes can't see ultraviolet or infrared light. A full spectrum camera detects all of these levels of light. The theory is that ghosts show themselves in UV or IR light ranges. These cameras are the best to use because they give you the most light possible. And this goes back to us talking about the uh, FLIR thermal cams. Same thing with a full spectrum video camera. If you look online, you'll see that it gives you the full wavelengths of all different lights. So it's a very clear, again, like putting a really good pair of sunglasses on. And now for my favorite, the laser grid. <laughs> Not so much for its effectiveness in ghost hunting, but just because it looks super, super cool. And I love it when just regular humans walk through it. It is the coolest thing ever. And where's the first time you saw this? The first time I saw it was in the Unitarian Church in Alton, Illinois. Yeah, all of a sudden Denise goes, whoa, because the guy whips out this thing and just throws it up against a back room that was on the other end of the sanctuary. And then he walked back into our room. And so you saw his, sh- his like form walking and through it. And it was this huge shadow. Now, this is coming from the girl who had all the lights that went to the music and black lights and strobe lights and the little like disco ball and everything in my bedroom growing up. But in black light posters. But that was super, super cool. I love this one. But anyway, getting back to the actual tool, green is the most visible color of lasers. So that generally is the color grid chosen. This is a device that you're going to face towards a wall or an open area, like Diane said. And then when it's on, it's going to throw a grid pattern up like small squares or dots of light. And then what hunters watch for are shadows to pass through the grid. And like I said, we saw an actual human walk through it, but you could see the shadow kind of breaking up the grid as it walked. And so it's just a really neat illusion. And I believe he told us a story that when he had thrown it up that same way before and they were doing a ghost tour, they all watched a huge shadow form and get bigger and bigger as it seemed like it was coming towards them. Yes, so not the night we were there, but yes, he did say that. But the night we were there, we just saw him walking through, and I could have watched that for hours. It was cool. Yeah, and uh, we didn't have any experiences there, but uh, Heather, who was with us, wanted to get the heck out of there when we went back into that back room. So Yes, and Tammy did too. Remember, she yeah. had something zip through her head. That's, well, Tammy was just sitting in front of me in the sanctuary. Mm-hmm. That happened to her, and then when we went back into the room that we had yeah. the grid up on. That's when Heather was like, get me out of here. So maybe it wasn't a human form I saw walking through the grid. Just saying. <laughs> Of course, there's the old standby flashlights. You're going to want these so that you can see around. Because, Denise, I've always kind of laughed about the idea of lights out. Turn all the lights out. Let's make it dark. I think that's just for the benefit of creeping out the ghost hunters or making the television shows seem a little bit more creepy. Ghosts don't care if the lights are on or off. And I've always, with my own theories, and my theories are whatever you want to give them, (laughs) could just be garbage. 
But if you're thinking that a ghost needs to draw energy from some kind of electrical item, wouldn't it be better to have a light on for it to draw that energy from rather than to have it off? Well, that's what we think it drew from in Plymouth when it turned mm-hmm. the, the lamp my on. My phone and yeah. my phone. Yeah, I think it fan. was pulling energy oh. from that. So I personally think that you should just investigate with lights on, but it does make it more fun to have the lights off. So you're going to want a flashlight for that. But it also works for communication. We saw this firsthand as well on that Orlando ghost tour. You want one that you can kind of twist so that it just barely turns off. And then you just set it down and you ask yes or no questions and you tell whoever you're trying to communicate with or whatever you're trying to communicate with. If you want to say yes, turn the flashlight on. If you want to say no, turn the flashlight off or turn it on twice. Or you could set up some kind of a system there. And when we were there, the guide asked a few questions and it seemed like everything corresponded with the flashlight turning off and on. I was just amazed that the flashlight would turn itself on like that. So, Well, we did see the flashlight at one other place in the Ripley's Museum. Oh, that's true. That's true. She asked them to turn the flashlight on. And what made that most believable to me is that it faded on and faded out. And when you are turning on and off a flashlight, it's either on or off. Didn't it come on fast, but then it faded out? Yeah, I think that was it. Because remember, I was playing with the EMF reader because I was like, look, it's making lights when it goes back and forth, back and forth. And then all of a sudden, since I was pointing in that corner, you had turned your camera that way or something or your video? Well, I pointed my video camera on my phone. I think what we were doing is doing Periscope. So yeah. we were doing a live feed. Yes. And I was moving it back and forth showing you that my, my reader would go on and then it would get less and on. And then we caught it up in the corner when the light flashlight, yeah, the flashlight turned on. on then. Yeah. Fun. Speaking of Heather again, I remember her watching that Periscope and going, holy, <laughs> holy, 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 holy something. Holy duty. <laughs> holy duty. Next, we have the ovilus. An ovilus reminds us of a speaking spell. Did you ever have one of those, Denise, by Texas Instruments? I didn't have it, but the kids <laughs> I babysat did. <laughs> I didn't have one either, but my friend did, and we loved it. it. It was cute. But anyway, this device converts environmental readings into words. It was created by Bill Chapel, and he devised a synthesizer chip that modulates energy changes into audible speech. The device has seven modes of operation. Dictionary mode contains 512 stored words. Phonetic mode sounds out the words by syllable. Hooked on phonics. <laughs> That's <laughs> what I do. Hey. <laughs> the, so ghosts, ghosts are also hooked on phonics, apparently. A combination mode puts both together. There is a yes or no mode. An electromagnetic field EMF mode that verbally outputs EMF levels in milligas. A level mode that graphically displays EMF levels. Finally, there is a dowsing mode that simulates virtual dowsing rods. Which brings us to dowsing rods. They're also known as divining rods and were used in the past to detect water beneath the ground. They also can detect gemstones and metals. Hey, I need a dowsing rod. Yeah, I know. You're going to be running around with these. What you're going to do is go grab a couple of hangers and bend them the right way and then assume that you're going to go out there and find something. I don't want to find something. I want to find gemstones. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very specific in what I'm looking for. So basically, these dowsing rods are moved by energy. And you've probably seen them used on some of these ghost shows as well. What a ghost hunter does is they'll just hold the ends of them very loosely in their palms of their hands, kind of have their hands and fists and put the metal rod in there and hold them straight out in front of them. And then they'll give the spirit a cue as to how they can indicate that they want to say yes or no. So they might say, 
cross the two metal rods uh, against each other for yes, push them away from each other for no, and then they'll ask yes or no questions to get some kind of a response. I've seen it in action. There are many videos on YouTube that you can watch this happen. Of course, to me, unless I'm actually holding those rods, I don't believe any of it because, I don't know, maybe you can somehow twist yourself in such a way to get them to work, but uh, people do swear by them. So there might be some other pieces of equipment that ghost hunters use out there. They're always creating new ones. I know that some ghost hunting groups make up their own equipment. There's just lots and lots to work with out there. Of course, the main piece of equipment you have, you carry with you all the time. Sometimes it's annoying as hell to carry it with you, and that's yourself. So basically, it's your sense of what is happening. Now, we can't use that for scientific research, but it is a pretty good gauge if something's going on. It's a good enough gauge for me because I don't care what science says if I know something to be true for me. So now you've gone about doing some of this ghost hunting or maybe you have what you think is a haunting going on in your house. What can you do to protect yourself against attachments and hauntings? So first and foremost, I think most people who listen to our podcast know that we come from a Christian spiritual background. And so generally, that's where we're coming from. But we will share some other things that uh, some other people out there who have different beliefs may do. So number one for us, what you do for protection, our go-to is prayer. And generally speaking, we tell people, before you go to do anything, say a prayer before and say a prayer afterward. And Denise and I will even be very verbal about disinviting things to come home with us. Yep. And letting them know you are not welcome to come home with us. If you did happen to join us on this ghost tour, and we might seem a lot of like a lot of fun, you can't come home with us. And specifically for us, we always call on the name of Jesus as our form of protection, and it seems to have worked for us very well. And then next is positivity. Negative entities will be attracted to negative thoughts. If somebody's feeling depressed, tired, or sick, you should stay away from anything that's reputed to be haunted. Imagine a negative entity is probably going to be attracted to negative energy. So if that's what you're putting out there, plus when people are depressed, tired, and sick, you're just worn down. You really want to be strong spiritually and physically if you're going to be going into anywhere that might have something that could possibly be evil or malevolent or something like that. Be of sober mind. So, so no drinking. <laughs> well, we're not saying no <laughs> drinking, but this isn't just a biblical recommendation. Stay away from the drugs and the, the alcohol. But when you are high or drunk, the human mind is a lot more susceptible to attack and your defenses are down. And so I think when you, know, when you hear people go on an acid trip or something, those seem to facilitate you crossing over that veil that's supposed to be there that's kind of the protection between the living and the dead and i think that that when you get into some hallucination type drugs it just opens that veil up and then if you think your brain is already in a position where it's susceptible and you've taken away that veil i think people are really open to a lot of stuff to happen then yes well sort of like with the the one with if you're feeling depressed tired or sick being negative, it's just that when you're, you're run down or when your defenses are down, which are happen, like Diane said, when you're depressed, tired, or sick, or when you are under the influence of something, that is going to make you susceptible on both of those. So that's kind of fits really well there. Next, you want to speak authoritatively directly to the spirit. Take control of the situation and tell them to leave. Leave you alone or quit doing what they're doing. 
One note here, if they keep doing what they're doing, get the heck out of there. (laughs) (laughs) If they're not listening, maybe you should leave. Yeah, because one time we saw it where the ghost hunter guy kept saying, leave my friend alone. I command you to leave him alone. And the spirit kept like scratching her harder and doing things more. And finally, I'm sitting there looking at him going, okay, you need to get her the heck out of there because he obviously doesn't care that you're an authority. But you do want to be authoritative when you are thinking you're maybe being encountered. Now, salt is not only a very powerful tool when it comes to cooking. It can cover up the fact that you may not necessarily be a very good cook. It adds flavor to your food. But it's a very powerful weapon when it comes to the spiritual world. And it comes up in the Bible more than people might think. It was a symbol of friendship and integrity when it was shared between people. The disciples were called to be the salt of the earth. That means not bland, but most importantly, not contaminated because salt, in order for salt to be good, it has to be pure. Well, and just kind of a note here, there for a while, we were actually leaving some Hawaiian salt in guest rooms as they were getting ready to check out at the Polynesian Resort in our club level. And that was kind of that same, you know, friendship, goodwill. So even in the Polynesian culture, it's a very powerful thing of this gift of partying. I don't think people understood it, so we don't do it anymore. But it was a special salt that we had to order in that we were putting in little bags and giving them. So it was kind of cool. I thought it was really cool. That's interesting. You never told me that before. That's because it's never come up. We don't usually discuss salt in its power. <laughs> I didn't know that there was so much about using salt as a form of friendship. And this goes back to the Semites and that's what they would do. So interesting that that would carry over to the Polynesian culture as well. So I'm sure there's other cultures that do the same thing. Now I've discussed with listeners before that I have this theory when it comes to demons that they come from the Nephilim and humans mating and that these are spirits that can't go anywhere. They have nowhere to go. And for me, when I think of a spirit that doesn't have a body, Denise, what what are our human bodies mostly made of? Water. So a spirit without a body doesn't have all of that physical water. So a demon is very thirsty. It's like they're out in the desert. And when you read anything in the Bible that would be talking about something demonic, usually there will be a reference to out in the desert. So imagine that you have this, generally speaking, a demon would be an evil spirit. They are really, really thirsty. If you are really thirsty, what is the last thing you want? If you're thirsty, salt. Exactly. So a demon probably is going to be pushed away by salt. So it would make sense to put it in some of the thresholds of your home, whether it's on your windowsills, at your front door. Some people will tell you to put it at the four corners of your house. Some people will say a little prayer or chant something while they're putting the salt in place. But this is a very good deterrent. And it also works against uh, insects and stuff too. So I've been known to do that occasionally. Well, and salt is a purifier, though, because the salt scrubs are very much purifying to the body as far as like therapy type stuff. And then also Epsom salts are amazing for soaking things in Epsom salt to help get the impurities out. So That is true. I love soaking in Epsom salt. White sage for smudging. Dry sage can be found at metaphysical stores and can be used as a repellent to spirits. The most common practice is to light the sage so that it smokes. Crack a window in each room of the house and start at the furthest point from the window, waving the smoke from the sage in all corners and sweeping it across the rooms towards the window. The thought is that if a spirit is in the room, the sage will cause it to flee out the window. Yeah, we used to have a massage therapist in the building. I worked in a very historical building and she would go around. It was a haunted historic building in downtown Denver. 
Yeah. The was, Grant Humphreys mansion to be exact. It was beautiful. But my office was there and we did have a lady who had like a natural, she did holistic nutritional counseling and she was a strong believer in sage being a cleaner. And so she would go around and sage all the time. So you would walk in and think there had been a party there. And then you're like, oh no, she was just taking care of cleansing our, our space. There's also blessed water and oil. Some believe you need a priest to bless the water or oil, but for us, we believe you can bless the water yourself. And in our religious beliefs, that would be blessing it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And there will be people who will put these in the four corners of the house. And it can also be used effectively on the thresholds of your home. And you can put it on a person as well. Their forehead is usually the place where you would mark it. And you would usually do it in the sign of the cross. It's also another way to to bless people too. And Diane, I think the next one is very, very important in our home, and we should start really adhering to this to make sure nothing haunts us, and that is the burning of lavender incense. And Denise knows I hate incense. (laughs) But she is getting better at lavender. I have a lavender um, scented stick that takes care of our car. So our car's safe. Yeah, I uh, I used to say that lavender had a, a foofy smell to it, and I wasn't very crazy about it, but I, I have gotten to where I will tolerate it a little bit more. And we're talking true lavender, not that perfumey, stinky stuff. But you know, something that's probably good, I have that lavender in our car, since that's the car we take when we go on ghost hunts. So see, we already have a cleansed area before we get back in. I'm brilliant. <laughs> We have discussed mirrors several times on the show about how they can be used to trap spirits. And one of the reasons why mirrors would be covered at death was to keep a person's spirit from getting trapped in a mirror. So good idea is to cover mirrors at death so that you don't trap any spirits that you don't want to. Or you don't want to become the evil queen. Or that too. I I regularly stand in front of my mirror, Denise, and ask it mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? And it always says Tiana. (laughs) exorcism in extreme cases. Those are the cases where I think I'm just going to hit the road and see if I can outrun the demons. Yeah, if I need, don't want to do that. Yeah. Sorry. If it needs an exorcism, I'm out of there. Okay, that's enough for me. Thanks. And Denise, we have one more tip here, and I'm going to let you share that one. And most important of protecting yourself at all is don't ever tempt the spirits. <laughs> then you don't have a problem to begin with, right, Denise? Exactly. After decades of scientific research and probably what amounts to millions of paranormal investigations, we really have no substantive proof that there are ghosts or what ghosts may be, and perhaps that is what keeps us all so passionate about the subject. Perhaps it would actually be a sad day if we ever found all the answers. And that is why we always end our episodes with the question about whether a place is truly haunted and leave it for you, the listener, to decide. So do ghosts exist? That is for you to decide. Well, that was fun, Denise, going back through the history of ghost hunting. And I'm sure there's some things that we missed in there. If you guys want to share any extra tidbits, we would be happy to share those with the listeners in the future. And I did also want to say for some of you who are very serious ghost hunters, we adore you. And so when we kind of make light of things and and laugh, that's just us and our personality. We by no means are making fun of you all, because if you weren't out doing what you do in tempting the spirits, we wouldn't have the stories to share on our podcast. Exactly. So we appreciate what you do. And I think a lot of people know that we do a lot of tongue in cheek type things here because uh, We do occasionally tempt the spirits. We don't go to the extremes of whipping out the Ouija board to do such things. But I think that's our main thing is we're telling you don't use those things. I don't tempt spirits. I have been known from time (laughs) to time to to debunk one, but I have never tempted one. Denise, we are getting ready to leave on our road trip 
of 2017. We're going to head through Mississippi, Texas, and Louisiana. And I cannot wait. We're leaving soon. Now, the plan is to get a couple of podcasts loaded up to drop for you guys while we are gone. And we will make attempts to try to do some podcast episodes while we are on the road. We've done that in the past. Our first road trip, we were able to do several. I think we did like six. When we did the Carolinas, I think we put one up. A lot of it depends upon how much time we have and if we have access to uh, Wi-Fi and being able to get things up and and going. But on this trip, we could be safe because there's like five where in the world are you Starbucks cups that I need? So apparently we're going to be in Starbucks a lot. So I can't promise that we're going to have road trip shows up for sure, but we will try our best. And I will try my best to get the next two uh, regular episodes up. The first one of those is going to be the Shiloh Inn in Salt Lake City, Utah. We are going to be joined by a listener named Kaz Linza, who is going to share with us a horrific story about the background of the hauntings that are going on at this hotel and some of the experiences that people have had and an experience that he, or I believe it was his sister, had there as well. We encourage you guys to check out our website at historygoesbump.com. And Denise, if people want to send us feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. And we did get a message over on our History Goes Bump page from Melissa Wiebe. I hope I said that right. I'm at episode 75. And while scrolling through the forthcoming episodes, I saw you guys did one on the Battle of the Somme last year. Anyways, I recalled seeing an episode on CBC last June or July in which they did a dramatization of some of the mothers who lost sons as part of the Newfoundland troop. One of the mothers saw the ghost of her son on the day of the battle outside of her kitchen window. She knew then that her son had died in the battle before the telegram confirming his death. So those stories, Denise, are always heartbreaking, and yet they're also heartwarming because I think it indicates to us that we have a chance to say goodbye. So maybe be more cognizant when you lose somebody because they might be trying to say goodbye and you're too busy grieving. Exactly. All right, Denise. So we have hit show 200 and that's always a time to look back, survey the landscape, see where we've come, where we're going in the future, what's working, what's not working. First of all, we want to thank our executive producers. In This month, we hit two and a half years that we have been doing the History Ghost Bump podcast. We became a business back in 2016, so we also had to pay taxes for the first time this month. We had to pay ghost taxes. I wish we had to pay ghost taxes because maybe then they really wouldn't exist. (laughs) That's true. We put numbers down on paper and we just want to thank you guys because you are the ones who keep the show going and you have been so very generous to us. And it doesn't matter if you are the one that's giving us $100 a month or giving us a dollar a month. Every little bit counts. And if you think that just giving us a dollar doesn't make a difference, if just a fourth of the people that are subscribed to this show gave us a dollar every month, I'd be doing this full time. So your dollars do make a difference. We are a show that is completely listener supported, always have been, always will be. And the reason why we don't run ads is because as far as Denise and I are concerned, this is our baby. This is our artwork. We're painting you guys a beautiful mural. And to us, putting an ad or two in the middle of it would be like throwing a bucket of paint up against a mural. It works for other podcasts, doesn't work for us. And while other podcasts have no problem asking for donations and running ads, the bulk of them (laughs) that are successful, I can't do that. There's no way I could ask you guys to give to our show and then run ads. Never going to happen. 
Now, we're going to have to make some changes, and some of them you're not going to like, some you are. We went over to Patreon and saw what we're doing. We're two and a half years into this, and frankly, I thought we might be a little bit further along when it comes to donations. It seems like we take three steps forward and two steps back, and at any point, we have at least $100 in declines over there. Most of the time, I think it's an issue between PayPal and Patreon. We never let you guys know that because you're donating to us. I'm not going to go, hey, you're in decline. So if you guys could keep track of your accounts, um, some of them have been months that you've been in decline. When we started the show, Patreon was just starting. So we went with them and we've grown with them and watched things change over there. It used to be milestones that you would shoot for. Now they're called goals, which makes more sense. And when we set up our goals, we thought, well, let's put some incentives in there. And I'm not going to get into all of this because we've talked about it on other shows. But anyway, when we reach certain levels, we were going to add episodes. And we've been doing that until we got ourselves to seven episodes a month. But we've also been lengthening the episodes. We've been bringing in interviews. And while that seems like it may not be as much work because I'm not having to do as much research, we do have to do the research still to do the interviews. And I can tell you, editing the audio takes twice as long. So that being said... The bad news that I know you guys are not going to like is I can't continue at this level. History Goes Bump has not only become a full-time job, it's more than a full-time job. And while the executive producers have helped me back off to about 30 hours a week with my quote-unquote real job, I have not a lot of time to do much of anything else, which even includes sitting down and just watching shows that I like to watch at night. I have to realize that my type A personality needs to back off. So until History Goes Bump is paying me a full-time wage, I can't put all this energy and effort and everything into it. So we've been bringing you guys seven episodes every month, and we've been doing three bonus episodes every month for our executive producers. So that's 10 episodes a month. And while the bonus ones are not as long, still have to do quite a bit of research for that. And we feel like because we've been putting so much energy into the free stuff, we haven't been paying as much attention to the executive producers. They're paying the bills. They should be primary to us. So we're going to shift our focus there. So from now on, we're only going to be doing five shows every single month. I love doing this. I love bringing this to you guys. But again, I, I just can't keep doing that. Look, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. So can't keep doing that. The changes that we made over on Patreon, we got rid of all those goals, so there's no more of those incentives. If we reach a certain level, we'll bring extra episodes. We also sent out over $950 worth of rewards last year, and you may have noticed that we stopped doing the free t-shirt drawings this year. That's why. Trying to keep up with keeping the rewards going for our executive producers and giving away free t-shirts was, it's too much for us. So we're no longer going to be doing the free t-shirt drawing. Plus it usually went to people who aren't even active in the Spooktacular crew and don't really contribute anything. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to send a t-shirt out to people who may not even really care about the show anymore. Two goals we have now $4,000 a month. That's so that we can be doing this full time. And then the other one is a dream number so that maybe in the future, if we ever reach that level, we could start renting out venues for meetups, ghost hunts, and also maybe host our own convention. So just dreams in the future. We're changing up the reward levels. We're going to add an extra level at $2 a month. We're going to start doing private videos. And these are going to feature haunted locations, cemeteries, other things of that nature. 
They're going to be for the executive producers at $2 and above, eyes only. And if you guys have seen our video that we made over that was a walking tour in St. Augustine, it's going to be stuff that's similar to that. And then we have been doing three bonus episodes at the $5 and above level every single month. We're going to take that up to four and we're going to start adding extra things in there. We have the haunted true crime that we've been doing. Denise has been doing her haunted animals. We'll throw in outtakes or extra parts of interviews in there. We're also going to start looking at interviewing people in different areas of the paranormal or ghost hunting groups or something like that that might be of interest to you guys and add those in as bonus episodes as well. So that's at the $5 above level. Also at the $10 and above, $25 and above, $50 and above, there are t-shirts involved there. At the $10, you get a mug after you've donated for three months. And then when you donate for another nine months, you hit your year, we send you a free t-shirt. And then every year thereafter, you'd get a free t-shirt. And it was always whatever the exclusive design was for that year. We're still going to have the exclusive designs because we love what you guys come up with. But now at those levels, when you're going to get your free t-shirt, you will have your choice of any t-shirt that's in the Emporium in any color you want, the size and style you need. So that's something that's changed there. At the dollar level, when you guys give a dollar, we do have the virtual meetups. We haven't done them for the past two months for a couple of reasons. Number one, for some reason, Disney's not hiring new cast members. And Denise has been working six days a week and usually about 10 hours a day, which is why you haven't heard her as much maybe in some of the interviews. And maybe that's why we're feeling a lot of pressure, too, is because we're having to record in little the wee hours of the morning and stuff whenever we could squeeze it in. So we haven't had a lot of time for that. And the program that we were using, Huza decided to go out of business or quit doing it. And I haven't found anything that's comparable to it that had the fun features that it had and that worked the way it did. It's my understanding that Patreon's going to come up with its own deal. So I'm hoping that's coming in the next couple months. When we get back from the road trip, we will try to do like a live YouTube or something and make it private so that we can do that for you guys. We want to make sure that you're taken care of. So I think that about covers it. And we just want to ask you guys to consider... Starbucks, a tall, just regular brewed coffee, $1.85. If you just gave that up once a month and sent that to us, it would make a huge difference for History Ghost Bump. We are one of the only podcasts out there trying to do it this way. And I know other podcasts probably look at us like we're foolish, but I truly believe that we can be fully listener supported and not have to go away from being independent. And as far as I'm concerned, if you're using corporate money and having to run ads, you're not really independent anymore. We want to stay for the listeners, by the listeners. So if we've made a difference in your life at all, if we've helped to make your drive better, your day at work better, if we've entertained you, made you laugh, brought a little light into your life, made you feel like you're part of a community and you're not a weirdo out there who is interested in the macabre and creepy and scary or a history nerd and you don't feel like such a goob, maybe consider going forward, just sending us that that extra dollar. Again, it would make a huge difference to us. Every little bit matters. We want to thank you guys for all the support you've given us. We can't believe the number of downloads we've been getting of the show. It's because you guys are listening and sharing the show, and we so appreciate that. We do have a couple of reviews to share with everybody from the iTunes The first one is from Mrs. Bacon 06. Great mix, five stars. I love the combination of history and supernatural. Well, thank you for that, Mrs. Bacon. We love bacon. (laughs) Yes, we do. And then there's T. Middleton 88. Love the show, five stars. I've been listening to the show for a while and I love it. I listen while I homebrew beer 
and while doing chores and it helps make everything go by faster. Thanks for a great podcast. Thank you for that review. So the flavor's not in the hops, it's in the bump? That's right. Cool. (laughs) Bump beer. There we go. (laughs) We want to thank you guys for listening to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to thank executive producer Cyrus Locke for increasing your donation. Thanks. Be sociable. Drop the chain rattling, neck biting, and shape shifting, and join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump. Like the page and follow us. <laughs>